Hello, welcome to Notable Nobels, a podcast about the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine. My name is Harrison Doolin. I am currently recording this episode in Seattle, Washington, where I have recently moved to start my new job as a postdoctoral scientist at the Fred Hutch Cancer Center. I'm pretty excited about it. Fred Hutch has produced three winners of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, and it's a pretty great place for scientific research. And hopefully, I can contribute some good science to that as well. Uh, But getting back to this podcast, the purpose of this series is to trace key advancements made in the biological and medical sciences over the past 120 years or so, and we're using the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine as a guide. Now, every career has its highest prize, and for scientists, that prize is the Nobel Prize. It's the most prestigious award a scientist can receive, and it marks discoveries that have made a profound impact on our understanding of biology and our ability to treat diseases. Today, we will be examining the 1975 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, which was awarded to David Baltimore, Renato Del Becco, and Howard Temin. The Nobel Assembly at the Karolinska Institute chose to give Baltimore, Del Becco, and Temin the award, quote, for their discoveries concerning the interaction between tumor viruses and the genetic material of the cell, unquote. We'll be talking about how these scientists showed that certain viruses can incorporate DNA copies of their genomes into the genomes of the cells they infect, and how that led to the discovery of a new class of viruses called retroviruses. We'll also talk about an enzyme used by retroviruses called reverse transcriptase that can convert RNA into DNA, and we'll go over the many ways reverse transcriptase has revolutionized molecular biology over the last five decades. But first, a little bit of background on Baltimore, Dolbeco, and Temin. We'll begin with Dolbeco, who was the senior of the trio. Renato Dolbeco was born in Catanzaro, Italy in 1914. He entered the University of Turin in 1930 at the age of 16 to study medicine, and he graduated with his doctorate in medicine just six years later. In 1936, he was drafted into the Italian army as a physician and was called into action with the start of World War II. He saw action in France and Russia, but quickly became cynical of the war. He deserted the army and hid in a small village near Turin until the end of the war, helping resist German occupation when he could. Once the war was over, he returned to scientific research at the University of Turin in 1945. He was soon persuaded by some of his colleagues that the possibilities for scientific research in America were quite good, so in 1947, he emigrated from Italy to the United States. His first appointment was in Bloomington, Indiana, where his scientific successes attracted the attention of Caltech in Pasadena, California. He was offered a position at Caltech in 1949, which he accepted, and he remained there for the next 14 years, rising to the rank of full professor. During this time, Dolbeco made many important discoveries. His research focused on animal viruses, and he developed several important assays for counting viruses and growing them in cell culture. Many talented scientists would come to work at his lab, including Howard Temin, with whom he would later share the Nobel Prize. In 1963, Dolbeco moved his lab from Caltech to the newly created Salk Institute in San Diego, California. He would stay there for the next 10 years, and it was during this time that he would make his Nobel Prize winning discovery. Meanwhile, Howard Temin and David Baltimore were getting their careers up and running. Howard Temin was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1934. His interest in biology was sparked at an early age when he attended a program for high school students at the Jackson Laboratory in Bar Harbor, Maine. He attended Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, where he majored in biology, 
and after completing his degree, he attended graduate school at Caltech working in the lab of Renato Dobeco. He completed his PhD in 1959 and stayed at Caltech with Dobeco for a year as a postdoc before moving to the University of Wisconsin-Madison to start his own lab. He would stay at Madison for the rest of his career, and it was there that he would perform the experiments for his Nobel Prize. David Baltimore, the youngest of the trio of Nobel laureates, was nevertheless quick to reach scientific success. He was born in New York City in 1938 and grew up on Long Island. In a strange twist of fate, Baltimore also attended the program for high school students at the Jackson Labs in Maine, the same one that Howard Temin attended. Temin was actually still at the Jackson Labs when Baltimore showed up as a high schooler in 1955, which was exactly 20 years before the two of them would win the Nobel Prize. Temin was four years older than Baltimore and was at the Jackson Labs as a college mentor to the high school students, while also doing some research of his own. Baltimore became good friends with Temin and even decided to attend the same college as him, Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. Howard had already graduated and moved to Caltech to work with Dulbeco, but his younger brother Peter was at Swarthmore and was a part of Baltimore's circle of friends. In 1959, while still an undergraduate, Baltimore secured a position as a summer intern at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York, which at that point in time was functioning kind of like a summer retreat center for Nobel laureates. Baltimore met some of the greatest scientists in the country that summer, including MIT professor and future Nobel winner Salvador Loria. Loria was impressed with Baltimore and advised him to apply to MIT's graduate program. Baltimore took the advice and was accepted into MIT in 1960. However, his research interests shifted. He had become interested in animal viruses, but most of the faculty at MIT studied viruses that infect bacteria. So after only a year at MIT, he transferred to the Rockefeller Institute in New York to work on animal viruses. He finished his PhD at Rockefeller in an astonishing two years, which has to be a record for a shortest PhD ever. He then bounced around a bit as a postdoc and research scientist before accepting a position as an associate professor at MIT in 1967 at the incredibly young age of 29 years old. It was during his time at MIT that Baltimore would make his Nobel Prize winning discovery. So what exactly were these three scientists working on? What were they researching? Well, to understand the significance of their discovery, we have to talk a little bit about the major developments that were happening in molecular biology in the 1950s, and we also have to talk, once again, about Rouse sarcoma virus, or RSV for short. In the middle of the 20th century, a revolution in molecular biology produced some of the greatest discoveries ever to take place in biology. At the core of these discoveries was the principle of genetics, the study of hereditary traits. It was well known, and is still readily apparent, that when organisms reproduce, the offspring inherit the traits of the parents. We see this all the time in the traits we share with our parents, like among family members, or for example when we breed animals. When a pair of beagles mate, they produce more beagles, not a Labrador. Traits are conserved. So while it was known genetic information is inherited, the molecular nature of that heredity was not easily understood. That all changed in the middle of the 20th century. A series of brilliant experiments and many Nobel Prize winning discoveries that we will spend a lot of time on in future episodes culminated in the 1950s with the discovery by James Watson, Francis Crick, and Rosalind Franklin of the double helix structure of DNA. DNA was shown conclusively to be the genetic material of cells, or in other words, DNA is the cellular molecule of heredity. This means that DNA is the blueprint 
that contains all the information for building a new cell, and DNA is inherited each time a cell replicates. In 1957, Francis Crick took all of the breakthroughs in molecular biology and summarized them into what he called the central dogma of biology. The central dogma describes how information is transferred from the DNA blueprint of a cell to the functional units of the cell, the proteins. Proteins are complex molecules with a wide range of functions, and they're considered to be the workforce of the cell. Each protein is coded in the DNA of the cell in the form of a protein-coding gene. The central dogma describes how the information in the protein-coding gene is converted to the final protein product. It goes like this. DNA is transcribed into RNA, and RNA is translated into protein. RNA is like the molecular cousin of DNA. When a gene is turned on, an RNA copy of the DNA is created specifically for that gene. The process of making this RNA copy is called transcription, and it takes place in the nucleus of a cell. That RNA copy of the gene is exported from the nucleus, where the RNA code is translated by machinery inside the cell to produce the final protein product. The DNA to RNA to protein flow of genetic information is common to every single cell on the planet, from the smallest bacteria to the largest sequoia tree. So all this amazing work was being done in molecular biology in the 1950s, but what did that have to do with the Nobel laureates in today's episode? Well, we return once again to the Rouse sarcoma virus. This is the third of three episodes that deal with the Rouse sarcoma virus. We talked previously about how the discovery of the Rouse sarcoma virus generated a lot of interest in oncoviruses, viruses that cause cancer. After Rouse sarcoma virus was discovered, many more oncoviruses were quickly identified. One interesting question that arose among scientists was how oncoviruses were able to permanently alter normal cells so that infected cells and all of their progeny were now cancer cells. Scientists reasoned that the oncoviruses might be changing the genetic material of the infected cells somehow so that the changes made by the oncovirus were passed down to the new cells each time the infected cells replicated. Once scientists determined that DNA was the genetic material of cells, they reasoned that the oncoviruses might be altering the DNA of the host cells somehow. The discoveries made by Dulbeco, Temin, and Baltimore led to the realization that viruses can insert copies of their genomes into the DNA of the host cells. One of the earliest examples of viral integration into host cell genomes actually comes not from oncoviruses, but from bacteria viruses called phages. In the early 1950s, scientists working with a virus called bacteriophage lambda noticed that viral DNA became connected in some way to the DNA of the bacteria host. In 1962, the scientist Alan Campbell proposed that the phage DNA could be incorporated into the DNA of the bacteria. The integrated copy of the phage DNA could lie dormant in the bacteria, only to become activated at a later time to produce more phages. The integrated copy of the phage DNA was dubbed the prophage, but scientists soon wondered if viruses other than phages might be able to integrate their genomes into host cells as well. Dulbeco was the first to demonstrate this principle with an animal virus. In the late 1960s, he was working with a class of oncoviruses called polyomaviruses, specifically a virus called SV40. SV40 can induce cells grown in culture dishes to become tumor cells. When Dulbeco checked the DNA of these tumor cells, 
he discovered that the DNA of the SV40 virus had ended up incorporated into the DNA of the host cell, sometimes multiple times. This discovery was extremely exciting since it explained how an oncovirus might permanently alter the cell so that all the daughter cells were also cancer cells. The virus inserting its genome into the host cell was like adding a page to the cell's blueprints, giving each new daughter cell the information needed to make more virus proteins. Now, while this was really exciting, it also led to a problem for scientists like Baltimore and Temin who were working on the Rouse sarcoma virus. This is because unlike SV40, and unlike every living cell on the planet, the Rouse sarcoma virus uses RNA as its genome rather than DNA. Viruses are some of the weirdest organisms on the planet. First of all, they are incapable of replication on their own, and must use the machinery of the cells they infect in order to replicate themselves. Secondly, it was discovered early on that the DNA as genetic material rule did not apply to some viruses. While some viruses like the polyomaviruses do use DNA as their genetic material, many viruses use RNA. In fact, most of the nastier human viruses have RNA genomes, including polio, Ebola, yellow fever virus, dengue virus, influenza viruses, and coronaviruses. Scientists were interested in how these RNA viruses replicated themselves. Some DNA viruses, including SV40, hijack the DNA polymerase enzymes of the host to make more virus DNA. But most RNA viruses need to bring their own polymerases into the cell to replicate their RNA genomes. Early in his career, David Baltimore demonstrated that polioviruses replicate their genomes with an enzyme that uses the poliovirus RNA as a template to make more copies of the virus RNA genome. Thus, the central dogma of biology was modified. DNA to RNA to protein was still true, but also sometimes viruses could do RNA to protein without ever using DNA at all. All that was exciting, and it was shown that many RNA viruses replicate this way, but working in Madison, Wisconsin in 1962, Howard Temin ran an experiment that suggested this wasn't the case for Rouse sarcoma virus. Temin's experiment was pretty cool. He took cells in a dish and infected them with either the Rouse sarcoma virus or another RNA virus called Newcastle disease virus. He then treated the infected cells with a drug called actinomycin D. Actinomycin is a drug that binds to DNA to prevent its transcription into RNA. 12 hours after infection, Temin checked the cells to see how much virus they had produced. He found that actinomycin D had reduced the levels of RSV by over 90%, while levels of Newcastle disease virus were unaffected. Temin then took radio-labeled RNA from Rouse sarcoma virus and allowed it to hybridize with DNA from RSV-infected cells. He saw that the RNA probe bound to the host cell DNA. Temin concluded that Rouse sarcoma virus must create a DNA version of the virus genome. He deduced that this provirus form of the virus genome was incorporated into the genome of the host cells and the actinomycin blocked the transcription of viral RNAs from the proviral DNA. Temin published his results in 1963, but was greeted with skepticism from the majority of the scientific community. After all, Temin was basically saying that RSV could reverse the flow of genetic information established by the central dogma. 
The central dogma said DNA was transcribed into RNA, but Temin was saying RNA could be transcribed into DNA. Nobody had ever heard of an organism doing such a thing, and a lot of people didn't buy it. Temin, confident in his conclusions, set out to demonstrate that RSV did in fact have an enzyme that could convert RNA to DNA. However, at the time, he lacked the chemistry skills needed to do the experiment, so his results with RSV slowed. Meanwhile, at MIT, David Baltimore had heard about his friend Temin's result. He too was interested in how RSV replicated its genome, and thought Temin was right about the formation of the DNA provirus. He reasoned that Rouse sarcoma virus must package the enzyme necessary for converting the RNA to DNA inside the virus particle along with the virus RNA. In the summer of 1970, Baltimore was able to purify an enzyme from the virus particle that he then tested to see if it could convert RNA to DNA. He took the purified enzyme and added it to a test tube containing an RNA template and the building blocks of DNA called nucleotides, along with the other chemicals necessary for the enzyme to function. Two hours later, he checked his test tube to see if any DNA had been produced. Sure enough, DNA was there. Baltimore repeated the experiment, this time in the presence of an enzyme that degraded the RNA template. He saw that the amount of DNA produced was greatly reduced. He had shown, by a very simple experiment, that there was an enzyme that could reverse the flow of genetic information, transcribing RNA to make DNA. Excited, Baltimore called up Temin to tell him the good news. The phone call, which has been described by Baltimore's biographer Shane Crotty, went something like this. Temin picked up the phone, and Baltimore excitedly exclaimed, Howard, there's DNA polymerase in the virion of RNA tumor viruses. And Temin replied, Yes, I know, but where did you hear that? And Baltimore got all confused and said, I didn't hear about it, I did it. To which Temin replied with, You did it. We did it. <laughs> and after a minute of confusion, the pair realized that incredibly, they had independently done the same experiment within just weeks of each other and arrived at the same conclusion. The pair decided to publish their separate experiments back to back in the journal Nature. The RSV enzyme, which is called reverse transcriptase, was a huge find. When the papers were published in June of 1970, they quickly caught the attention of the Nobel Committee. Just five years after the 1970 publications, Dolbeko, Temin, and Baltimore were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. So we are now over 50 years from the time when these experiments were performed. What has been the impact of these discoveries, particularly the discovery of reverse transcriptase? Well, we first have to say that although these scientists were studying oncoviruses, the ability of viruses to insert DNA copies of their genomes into the genomes of host cells is actually not a main cause of cancer, and not usually what makes an oncovirus oncogenic. As we talked about on the last episode of this podcast, what makes a cancer cell a cancer cell is the presence of oncogenes or the lack of tumor suppressor genes. Cancer is not necessarily caused by the integration of viral DNA into the host genome. However, insertion of proviral DNA into the genome can potentially mutate host genes, including proto-oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. So even if a virus doesn't carry an oncogene, it may still have oncogenic effects. In reality though, cancers arising from this type of mutation are quite rare. 
we'll be talking some more in future episodes about additional oncoviruses. So for now, we'll just say that the direct impact on cancer research of the discovery that viruses can integrate DNA copies of their genomes into host cells has been small. However, the discovery of reverse transcriptase has had huge ramifications for science. For starters, RSV became the first identified virus in a class of viruses called retroviruses. All viruses in this class contain RNA genomes but replicate by reverse transcription. In the years following Temin and Baltimore's discovery of reverse transcriptase, several other retroviruses were discovered in mice and other animals. Work on retroviruses continued in the 1970s, but was mostly the interest of a small group of virologists. That all changed starting in 1981, when a new deadly virus appeared on the scene that was predominantly affecting the gay communities in New York and San Francisco. That virus was later given the name Human Immunodeficiency Virus, or HIV. And HIV is the most well-studied retrovirus to date. The work people had done studying the reverse transcriptase enzymes in RSV and other retroviruses greatly accelerated HIV research, including the production of antiretroviral drugs. The discovery of HIV was worth its own Nobel Prize, and it will actually be our topic in the next episode of this podcast. But before we wrap it up for today, we have to talk about probably the biggest impact of reverse transcriptase, namely its use as a tool of molecular biology. In many areas of biological research, scientists are very interested in studying gene expression in cells. A lot of time and money is spent studying which genes get turned on and off by cells in response to changes in their environment. Those changes can be things like low oxygen conditions, the presence of a pathogen or carcinogen, low or high nutrient conditions, or signals from surrounding cells. Following the central dogma, genes that get expressed are first transcribed into RNA and then translated into protein, so if you want to see which genes are turned on or off, you can check which RNAs or proteins the cell is producing. However, RNA is a kind of difficult molecule to work with, at least compared to DNA. RNA tends to degrade rather quickly, and it's also way harder to amplify than DNA in the lab. Since DNA is a lot easier to work with, most of the molecular biology techniques that scientists developed use DNA. However, since the discovery of reverse transcriptase, scientists can now convert an RNA into a complementary DNA, which is often abbreviated cDNA. The resulting cDNA can be sequenced to determine which genes the RNA came from, thereby showing which genes a cell expresses under a certain set of conditions. Additionally, the cDNA can be cloned into a vector to produce the protein the RNA originally coded for. A great example that shows the utility of reverse transcriptase comes from the recent SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus, so when scientists wanted to take the gene for the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein and clone it to make vaccines, the first step in that process was to use reverse transcriptase to turn the viral RNA to cDNA that could then be cloned into a vector to make the vaccines. Additionally, anytime anyone got PCR tested for SARS-CoV-2, the test was done with reverse transcriptase. PCR is a technique for amplifying DNA, so in order to detect SARS-CoV-2 in patients, before the PCR was done, the viral RNA was first converted to cDNA 
and the cDNA was then checked by PCR. Finally, scientists wishing to understand COVID-19 wanted to understand how cells altered their gene expression in response to SARS-CoV-2. This included studies that identified the cytokines that drive the hyperimmune responses often seen in COVID-19. Those studies regularly made use of reverse transcriptase to profile the genes turned on and off by cells in response to the virus. So in summary, you can thank reverse transcriptase for our SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, our SARS-CoV-2 tests, and our knowledge of how our bodies respond to SARS-CoV-2. And that is just one example of the thousands of ways scientists are using reverse transcriptase every day to tackle some of biology's biggest challenges. So that concludes this episode of Notable Nobels. This episode was recorded on December 20th, 2022. I want to thank Digital Mind Productions for providing the music. If you want to know more about the 1975 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, I recommend Shane Crotty's biography of David Baltimore titled Ahead of the Curve. Next time, we'll continue looking at retroviruses, specifically HIV, the most famous retrovirus in the world. Are you interested to know how HIV was first identified? Are you curious about the currently available drugs to treat HIV? Are you wondering why we still can't cure HIV or develop an effective vaccine that prevents it? Well, listen next time to find out. Thanks so much for listening. See you then.